0: Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Whalen returns. Dr. Whalen was a guest back in September. She's a parent coach, RDI consultant, and neurodiversity resource navigator. She holds a PhD in cognitive psychology and has held positions at Northeastern University, University of Maryland School of Medicine, and University of Maryland Center for Advanced Study of Language. She's the founder and owner of Guiding Exceptional Parents, and today we talk about her book, Is This Autism? A Guide for Clinicians and Everyone Else. With that, let's welcome Dr. Whalen. Dr. Whalen, it's really good to see you again.
1: It is great to be here, Artie.
0: So I read your book, and that's something that we're going to talk a bit about today. I'm really excited about that. Um, Is This Autism is the name of it. And you're not the only author. There are other people involved. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, what is it like? What's the process when there's more than one author in a book? Um, And in the book, you also mentioned that uh, the other author, Donna Henderson, Mm -hmm. she is a morning or day person, you're more of a night person. So correct. (laughs) um, I'd love it if you get into that a little bit too, of how it is working when you're on different schedules. And I'd imagine that there's, there's some shared knowledge between the two of you. And then there's also you each have knowledge that the other doesn't have. So how do you find the shared knowledge? And how do you find the knowledge that isn't shared? And how do you collaborate and make a great book like this?
1: So one thing we did is that um, we, we each owned different chapters. so for example, you know Donna is a uh, license, well she's a licensed psychologist and she diagnoses people for a living. It's like that's what she does is people come to her when some, you know they feel like things are not working well and they want to understand themselves better, and so she um, does a lot of testing and so on to determine what's going on for them and um and so she took the parts on the diagnostic criteria as the first draft, right? And I took the parts on the co-occurring challenges and the strengths as my first draft. and. Um, And we worked pretty collaboratively. So we actually worked a chapter at a time. Um, When I joined the project, she had already been working on it for maybe about a year, Um, but she wasn't getting anywhere uh, as quickly as she wanted to. That's unfair. She had done a lot of thinking about it. Um, But she wasn't going as fast as she wanted. We did not know at the time that we agreed to collaborate on this that we were facing down a pandemic, um, which actually, for both of our businesses, just uh, kind of exploded uh, people's need for support. And so um, we agreed to work together uh, in mid-2019. and. And then the pandemic hit and we were in lockdown. What we would do is we actually collaborated using Google Docs. Um, And what is great about Google Docs is that you can work collaboratively at the same time. So you're talking about something, and one person can type what what change they're thinking might address that person's concern, and the other person can see it in real time. So it makes collaboration really easy, even when the two of you aren't together. So because of the pandemic, we were working from our houses through, through yeah. Zoom and through Google Docs, and um, generally, what would happen is Donna for that first part, Donna would write a draft, and then I would look through it and read it and make tons of comments and uh, note things that I thought needed to be added or changed. And sometimes she would say, "Sarah, help! I need I, I am not finding the words to describe this," and so I'd write that section, and so we would just collaborate back and forth like that, and. Um, and so we just worked through the book chapter by chapter. And she was working. And by the way, I did want to clarify there are actually two books. Oh, yeah. yeah One so. is Is This Autism a Guide for Clinicians and Everyone Else? And that's for everyone like you and me. Um, but then the second book is actually on how to go through the diagnostic process. And so it's called a companion guide for diagnosing. And one of them is green and one of them is blue. And the one we're talking about today is the green book. And I just want to yeah. you know make sure your your readers know yeah. the difference because the way books get listed on uh, book sites is all by that first title. And so there are two and sometimes people order the wrong book. So I just wanted oh, to yeah. make, make Good sure time. people understood that. Um but anyway, um so we just worked our way through the book, you know, chapter by chapter and while she was drafting hers if there was a downtime I'd be working on how to, you know, how to write about my chapters. Um and so thinking about organizing them and um that was that was a humbling experience for sure you know trying to write I mean honestly just the co-occurring conditions chapter could be a book all unto itself and um I uh, I I actually feel like uh, I really just had to like condense massively and even so that chapter is ridiculously long so anyway, but that's how our process worked. And then, um, and then we would review at the end and we actually um, sent it out. So we had this amazing advisory board that worked with us. So that was composed of autistic people and clinicians who worked with autistic people. And, um, and some of them had both uh, qualifications. And, and many of them read our chapters as we wrote them point by point and called us out on our ableism. And, you know, just um, some of them were incredible copy editors and just, you know, so good at it. And then we would come back together, um, Donna and I, and go through and address everybody's comments point by point um, to try to make the manuscript the best it could be.
0: Yeah, that that aspect about them being really good copywriters or copy editors is interesting because in the book, you actually mentioned that that's uh, some of the autistic people you would work with would pick up on things that your professional copy editors missed in the process yeah. of, of looking over everything. So it's just one of those little strengths that certain autistic people have that just pick up on those details that other people miss.
1: Correct. That, yeah, it was, it was striking.
0: And I really loved the, you called it, uh, Insights from the experts, or oh
1: yeah, um, yep, from the experts. From the experts, yeah.
0: <laughs> and yeah. I really like that because sometimes when you read a chapter, it you know certain things resonate with you. But when you actually have somebody who lives the experience, putting their words, putting it into words, it just something hits you more, and and it just makes sense. Like there were, I, I would mark you know little sticky notes in the book and little things that just stuck out to me, and. A lot of them were those little stories that not always from the experts, but sometimes just a story about somebody. But a lot of times what people would have to say in the context of that chapter and what the chapter was talking about the from the experts part. So I really enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, and that was that was helpful for us too, because um, neither of us is autistic. And so um, we are what we call wow. autistic adjacent. Um, and so, you know, we know what we see from the outside, but understanding what people are experiencing from the inside helps you understand what you're seeing from the outside and so often what we code you know in the external presentation actually is not what the person is experiencing internally and i think that 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 one piece of it boy it just really helped me have much richer conversations with my kids who are both autistic um and my dad who's also autistic just about what their experiences were like and it just really really helped me understand so much more deeply what was happening.
0: Yeah, I feel like I have I've, I've looked into autism before um and it seems like everything is kind of an overview and and general um when you find things online of course you can get nuanced views to a certain degree but I feel like that's what I really loved about your book is the nuance of it. Like, it's very just, it's very nuanced. Like, you know, you you make it very clear, like, this doesn't apply to everyone, but this is something that some people can have. This is, this doesn't apply to everybody, but, it, you know, some autistic people have that. There's some overlap with people with ADHD for certain for na- certain aspects. And um, there's so many things in the book that I found So first of all, reading the book kind of made me realize I'm like, I don't think I'm on the spectrum. Like after reading the book, I, I don't believe that I I am autistic, but there's still a lot of things that resonate and they're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that a lot of people go through that and you can imagine the book made it very relatable, even for somebody that is not autistic where you can really read it and and understand what people might be going through, even though you, you can't completely put yourself in their shoes. It, it at least gets you to the point where you can try.
1: Artie. I'm so glad to hear that. Like that, that, I mean, that was our goal, right. Was to increase understanding. Right. Because I think that any Anyone who's neurodivergent is used to being misunderstood, and I think the more understanding we can bring to the different neurotypes that are out there, then you know the better the better the world is going to be for everybody.
0: Yeah, that's actually I have a hard time putting into words, and it's it's never the same when I say it, but what I'm trying to create with the podcast. And I'll touch on contentious issues over time with guests and a wide range of topics and everything. But that's ultimately what I want. I I believe that the more perspective people can gain, the more peaceful world we have, the more understanding people have, the better we get along. And, And with certain topics, we're more divided than ever. And I just think that understanding creates harmony.
1: I so agree with you. I have a friend who works with um, twice exceptional uh, parents and kids. um, And twice exceptional just means gifted at something and then um, disabled at another. And uh, the name of her business is with understanding comes calm. Mm. And I just love that because it's true. You know, when we understand what's going on, that really helps, um, helps us, you know, process.
0: Very much. One of the things I learned in the book early on was uh, the underdiagnosis of autism that you point mm-hmm. out. Uh, one study su- said that only 3 to 10% of autistic adults are actually diagnosed as such. Um, yeah. So that means like 9 to 32 times the amount of autistic people that are diagnosed are people that are autistic and not diagnosed. Um, that's a huge number, and it is. I think things like your book go to great lengths to potentially help that number get rectified. But what are the other things that need to happen? For well, well, you mentioned this in the book. This was discussed pretty thoroughly. Of and one of the reasons for you guys writing the book is people that should be diagnosing people with autism, people that are in contact clinically with people that have autism aren't equipped to make the diagnosis or are afraid to make the diagnosis because of how unclear certain things are that they're just not trained in it. So obviously your book is one way for uh, clinicians to improve their ability to diagnose, but what are some of the other things that can be done?
1: Yeah, so that's why we wrote the book, is to help with that. I mean, that really was the raison d'etre, yeah. right? I mean, it was just that that was why we wrote it. Um, so I, I there, there are a number of things. So one is increasing awareness amongst clinicians. Um, something that just constantly surprises me is how uh, people's notion of what autism is um, is is outdated, and so they find the diagnosis scary and hard to deliver the news about because I think that I mean truthfully uh a lot of people you know in the beginning we talk about the fact that um uh, there are um People who have what you know was called more typical autism or whatever, like and I, I call it the yeah. kinds of kids that Leo Connor might have um, Uh, diagnosed. So these are kids who have trouble with speaking, who may be very interior, may need to do a lot of repetitive movements to keep themselves regulated and things like that. And that type of autism is very scary um, because the disconnection inherent in it is very... um, it's just hard it's hard to navigate and um and so when people hear the word autism they might think that that's what they're dealing with so if you're only looking at somebody on paper you might think oh that's what you know that's that's what this person is going to be like and then when you interact with the real person you're like oh this is a very different thing than you know my Preconceived notion of what autism is. This is yeah. getting better. It's definitely getting better um, with awareness. Um, I I'm just. We did not talk about this in the book, but it's something that's just been eating at me, and I, I think this is the right context to bring it up. Um, I did a training with a. Um, a researcher at the Yale Child Study Center named Eli Leibowitz on what's called Failure to Launch. And um, this is about people who are making the transition from K to 12 um, into adulthood. And he did, uh, in collaboration with a number of researchers, a nationwide survey of how many families had somebody who was still living at home, who was not fully employed, And, um, you know, struggling to figure out how to make their way, even though it was, and I I can't remember what the criteria were, but the numbers he revealed were just shocking how many people were Mm -hmm. in that situation. And he then went and followed up and discovered that many of them had learning disabilities that nobody had ever identified while they were in school. Mm -hmm. And my suspicion is that a number of them were probably also autistic and never identified in school. Um, and because they were not getting the material presented to them in the way they needed it presented, then they were not prepared as well for adulthood. And, yeah. um, I, I think this is actually a crisis and it gets to, uh, Lorna Wing, um, who first identified, um, Back in the '80s, um, Asperger's syndrome in the UK, and what she did is she actually just went door to door um, in England and and you know other parts of the UK, and basically said, "Is there somebody living here who you know isn't you know successfully?" living their adult life or whatever, um, and discovered this huge, huge percentage of people who were not identified who did meet criteria Mm -hmm. for uh, what was then called Asperger's syndrome. And um, and so she, um, she alerted us to the fact that there was this population. We've never done a similar study like that in the United States. And, you know, the research you're referring to, um, we went, uh, not us, but the researchers went into um, uh, medical records for Kaiser, for example, Kaiser Permanente here in the U.S. And then also the one that for me really spoke loudly was the one that was done, i It was one of those Northern European countries like the Netherlands or Sweden, I can't remember, but they went to the psychiatric hospital and uh, looked at how many of the people who had been admitted for various psychiatric conditions. could, uh, were actually, uh, you could diagnose them as being autistic. And this was just from a record review. And it was a very large number of them who were not identified as autistic, but instead given other um, diagnoses like uh, narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, all sorts of um, pretty devastating diagnoses um, which could be better explained by autism, and so not only do you have underdiagnosis, but you also have misdiagnosis.
0: Yeah, what's what's the number of uh, people diagnosed with autism in the world today? Do you know the number?
1: I think the latest number, and it's even changed since we wrote the book, might be one in thirty-two or something like that from the CDC. I'm okay. I'm very bad at remembering numbers, so I'll just put that caveat there. But right. it's it's uh, I think in the book we reported it was one in forty-four, okay. um, and I believe that recently it was. Um, uh, lowered yet again, and my guess is so. You know, ADHD. The prevalence is usually thought of as being um, one in five. I think dyslexia is something like one in ten. Okay. I have to think that perhaps autism is you know more in that range yeah. um, than than you know the current underdiagnosed range.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess I should clarify. Like, I can't say for sure I don't have autism. It just doesn't. A lot of the stuff didn't resonate with me mm-hmm. in the in this sense that I, I would say it seems like I have autism, but something still resonated with me. And I think, I think most, uh, neurotypical people would probably resonate with many things in the book. Um, maybe just to a lesser degree, or maybe where it's just not something that's a problem or, or, you know, as prevalent as somebody who has autism.
1: This is a very important point, Artie. Um, And the reason is because, um, uh, you know, it's funny, because after I, you know, being involved in a book like this, that's designed to help us understand better and to diagnose better, there's a piece of me that is so very much in line with the idea that each of us is so unique. Each of our biology, our n- neurology is all so uniquely wired that we each have components of different things. And how it plays out in each individual is going to be um, is, is going to be different. Yeah. And you know, so uh, of course, parts of it resonate with you. You know, for me, the stuff that resonates hugely is the sensory stuff. I mean, that's a big deal for me. I have a lot of sensory stuff going on. And, um, and it does get in the way of the other stuff. When I get overwhelmed by auditory input, I find it very overwhelming. So, you know, I there, there are parts that I can really resonate with. The other thing that can happen when people are reading through the book is that you might not even be aware of something, right? And when you read about it, you're like, oh, that's a thing. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. And then when you become aware of it, suddenly it's like hard to think about, oh, what do I do? And my favorite example of that is gesture, because I gesture a lot mm-hmm. and um, yeah. when I speak. And um, I actually had a friend who did a study and um, people who gesture a lot actually need the gesture to cue them for speaking. And she did a study where she literally tied people's hands behind their back and asked them to speak and then had them speak without their hands limited. And she found that a lot of people who use gesture a lot became quite quite incoherent. (laughs) And so... um. So, um, but when I talk about gestures, suddenly I become very aware of what I'm doing with my hands and my body and so on. And then I'm like, Oh, you know, does this look weird? And, you know, I start thinking about it in a way I would never think about it normally. So that's, that's a, a danger that can happen when you become aware of something too.
0: Yeah. Um, I have a friend who I used to work with and I'm still friends with, and, uh, I talk with my hands, I'll move them. They're not... I'm not doing anything intentional. Like I'm not doing anything that I feel adds to what I'm saying, but if they're, you know, they're just hand movements and he'll, he'll notice things. And when people do that, he'll start kind of like mimicking them until until you realize what he's doing. And it's just kind of a way he jokes and (laughs) it's really funny, but it like, it makes you realize things. And then I have another guy, uh, a guy I used to work with. This was 20 years ago but he would pay a lot of attention to people's eyes and where they would move Mm -hmm. during conversations. And sometimes he'd be like, he'd like put his hand in your line of sight to like make you realize that he knows exactly where you're looking. Cause it just be off and like maybe something moves and you just follow something with your eyes. And yeah, Yeah. it's always really funny when people notice that and you start to notice things more and um, pay more attention to your own self and, sometimes it alters your behavior a little bit too. So
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> my brother-in-law used to say when you observe an event, you change the event.
0: Now, <laughs> yeah. uh, restricted or flat effect was really interesting to me because mm. of all the potential ramifications of that. You know, somebody going to the doctor, calling 911 and and having something serious going on, but just being completely monotone with the way that they express it. Um, Like I'm a dry person. I have a very dry sense of humor. Um, Not always dry, but I can be, I can say a joke and it it can be flat. And Mm -hmm. um, I don't, sometimes I can be very calm in like a distressing situation. And Mm -hmm. um, that, like that's, I'm thinking of that story in the book that, it was a maybe a famous person, but like they they come across a car crash and um, Oh, John
1: Elder Robison, yeah. Yeah,
0: and, and he he the one person was dead and the other person was injured and he just walked up to a door and said, Hey, there's a car crash over there, someone's dead. And yeah, that's it. They call call the police and it's just so interesting. Um and it can be And you taken. need
1: that. Yeah, and it, you need it, it, that, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I can imagine people like that. If if they're not affected greatly by things, they can even it could be a benefit in certain situations where if yeah. yeah you can be very calm in a distressing situation where other people are are freaking out. And not that it wouldn't affect you at all, but your ability to stay calm and and think yeah. logically in distressing situations is something most people have to train for um correct you know paramedics and stuff like that they i would imagine a lot of paramedics don't handle their first encounter with like a yeah. a horrible situation like they do after you know 10 20 50 yeah. um and for somebody to be able to walk into a a situation that's hard to handle for most people but be able to do it just naturally um calmly yeah. is a positive thing but in diagnostic events where you need to express something that's going on uh, it can definitely add to that being missed like oh they're fine There nothing's oh. going on with them like like no there's something going on in my body right now that I'm trying to tell you about but you're not understanding because I'm not you know and and then you have other things that can make communication hard for autistic people so if, if you have something else that first of all you're you're communicating with flat effects, something serious going on, but then there's something else preventing you even more from you know standing your ground and pushing back because yes some and, and that can just be assertiveness that doesn't have to do with any anything with autism necessarily absolutely, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd
1: love to tell a story about this, yeah, I, which yeah. is about my son, so my older son um is a flat affect. He's got that flat affect. He's very calm in the face of everybody being hysterical around him. So, um uh, when he was about I think he was about 13, he started um being unable to eat. He, everything he tried to eat, he would throw up. And we went to the hospital um because he was losing weight dramatically. So, um And uh, the first hospital we went to did a bunch of um, procedures or whatever, Um, and the minute I told them he was autistic, they decided that the issue was psychiatric. And they told us to go consult a psychiatrist. Now, thank heaven, we had a wonderful team and the pediatrician was furious, as was our developmental pediatrician. They were both just so angry. This is not psychiatric. This is physiological. Something is going on. By this time, my son had lost about 15 pounds in a Mm. week or two. It was bad. And so... We checked him out of that hospital, and, um, and then our pediatrician said, go to this other hospital here in the D.C. area. It was Children's Hospital. And we went there, and um, they, it turned out he had what is called, um, I, I don't know what the official name is. I think it's esophagitis, but it's a yeast infection in his esophagus, which meant that every time he ate, it felt like he was swallowing mm-hmm. ground glass. Okay, so it was very, very painful. It's a fungal infection, okay. so you treat it with an antifungal. But um, why they couldn't diagnose is they kept asking him, um, When you eat, do you feel nauseous? He did not know what the word nosh- nauseous meant. He said, What does that mean? They said, It means you feel like you want to throw up. So he was thinking, okay, if I eat something, I want to throw up. Therefore, I must feel nauseous. And so he said, yes, I'm nauseous. He wasn't nauseous. He His throat hurt, but he didn't mm-hmm. have the words to describe it. So all these things get to your point, yeah. right? A, he couldn't describe the pain and where it was, He didn't know the word nauseous, which meant it was hard for him to describe what was going on for him. His very flat affect led them to think he was just making it up and that it wasn't a real thing and therefore psychiatric in nature or nature. And, um, Mm And you know, by the time we got help for him, he had lost twenty pounds. And you know, he was a thin guy to begin with. And so it was—it was very dangerous what happened to him. And I think a perfect example of all the points you're talking about.
0: Yeah, later in the book you talk about, or maybe you mentioned it earlier too. I can't remember. But alexithymia, alexithymia, am I? Alexithymia. Yes. Would that be what's going on when? Because state of mind, I'm thinking like anger, and that's what you touch on in the book, like states of mind, like emotion, but would nauseous be covered under that? Like not being able to describe what nausea is?
1: So there are two things going on with that. So one is something called interoception or introception. I'm never sure how to pronounce it interoception or introception. But basically, this is uh, one of the sensory systems, which is awareness of your body's internal states. Okay, so things like I'm hungry, or my heart is racing, or I'm feeling warm right now, or my stomach hurts, or, you know, whatever, I need to go to the bathroom. All these things are cues that are going on in your body that some people are just not very tuned into. And you can be tuned into one system and not tuned into another system. So maybe you're good at recognizing a racing heart, but not so much your stomach feeling like, you know, pain or whatever. Um, If you have trouble with interoception, then it turns out that feelings are related to these interoceptive cues, right? So if you think about it, um, uh, feeling anxious might involve, you know, heart beating quickly and your stomach clenching up, and maybe this sort of, you know, funny feeling in your throat, and so on. Um, But if you can't detect those feelings it's very hard for you to know that you're having them even though your body may be responding in a way that's consistent with you having the experience the biological experience it's just you're not aware of it which means yeah. then it's very hard to label your emotions so so there's the physiological cues that relate to the emotions and then there's the words for the emotions which are also contextually determined so for Another example from my other son, who, um, when he would go horseback riding, um, he was always he would yell at me the whole way there. I hate horseback riding. I don't want to do this. You know, my teacher's a psychopath. He used to. He literally said that. Um, but um, and and he was just mad at me the whole time. And then he'd get there and have a fantastic time, a big smile on his face, and really like he loved horseback riding, and at some point i was like oh my goodness he doesn't understand the difference between being scared of something and nervous anticipation like you know anticipating something that you like they're very similar physiologically yeah. but the context is different right and so how you yeah. label those same feelings depends on the context
0: that makes sense i mean i the situation that comes to my mind is and I don't, I don't love roller coasters, but a lot of people love roller coasters and that feeling that, uh
2: mm-hmm.
0: little bit of anxiety yeah. or, you know, that stomach feeling, right. I mean, before you even get on the ride too, like you're a little bit apprehensive, even if you want to go on the ride. And I, I can imagine that being a situation for somebody who's autistic and has that interoception aspect, um, to not know, am I scared or am I, am I just feeling anxious about what I'm excited for? You know.
2: Yeah,
1: exactly. It's very interesting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Alexithymia is tough because a lot of therapies depend on us being able to tune into our bodies and tune into yeah. the emotions we're having in a moment. And if that's hard for you because you don't actually have awareness of what your body is feeling, then you have to go through a process of learning how to tune into that and, you know, detect those things. So yeah, it's, it's a serious challenge.
0: And what I loved about your book um, with alexithymia, you make it very clear that it has nothing to do with your ability to communi- communicate, like you can be very fluent in English. You can be a very great communicator and you, Mm-hmm. Like I think you told a story about um somebody being in therapy who was really intelligent and yes. uh could speak her mind about like can really voice anything and speak very fluently, great communicator, but then when it came to expressing how certain feelings like certain emotions made her feel, she just kind of was at a loss for words yeah. um yeah, very interesting.
2: Yeah. And, and frustrating.
0: Face blindness was something that I found very interesting too. Um, I wasn't very mm-hmm. aware of it. I have a friend, he's not autistic, but he used to go to school without his uh, contacts on frequently when we were in high school. And I, <laughs> I remember this feeling of being like, Hey, how's it going? And he just, he'd look at you like he didn't know you. And I can imagine that's kind of what it's like for people who encounter an autistic person that that they know with face blindness and how frustrating people might get who don't really understand what's going on and yeah. how I, I, it sounds kind of horrible for a person who has that not being able to. Oh, yeah. I mean, like it makes relationships hard and like, how, what is the extent to it? I mean. Oh, um, it's
1: variable.
0: Yeah. It's
1: variable. So okay. one thing to say about pros it, it's it's sometimes called prosopagnosia.
2: Mm-hmm. Um
1: and uh definitely you can see it in non-autistic people as well as autistic people. Um okay. and it it is it is devastating. Socially it's devastating. I actually feel like the quote we got um from a friend of mine actually um uh, uh Charlie. Um she I'm just going to, I'm going to read it because I think she just put it so beautifully. Um, So she wrote, she wrote, being face blind is tough. Everyone thinks you don't care. This is so true, by the way. It is so true. People think you don't care or you're being obnoxious or, or snobby, not recognizing people. I have seen so many people attribute rudeness to face blindness when it's literally just face blindness. Um, yeah. Uh, Charlotte says, I thought I was an awful person for years because so many people knew me and I didn't know them. It's hard to shift from casual contact to a real relationship when you aren't sure when you see them, whether you know them or not. But that doesn't make you uncaring. It makes you
2: lonely.
0: Yeah.
2: It's so true. Yeah. It's so true.
0: Yeah. It's what can be done in those situations? Like, and I guess it's going to be limited no matter what, because the only people that can really do anything are the people that know the autistic person with face blindness and are willing to go to some measure to mitigate the effect it has on that person. But we're human beings and we interact with people that don't know anything about us on a regular basis. So in those situations, it seems pretty hopeless. Like there's, there's, there's not going to be some big initiative nationwide or worldwide to address this. Everyone's not going to wear name tags or anything like that in the <laughs> world. Um, although that, I think that was suggested on an episode of Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> then...
1: Wisdom of Seinfeld, right? <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: yeah. What can um, be know, done?
1: I so and this gets back to your point about just understanding the the human experience that other people might be having yeah. so i have a, a a good friend who is face blind and she's moderately face blind and um she says she recognizes me by my hair and my shoes apparently i wear a very particular kind of shoe i don't know and uh and so she um but I have another face blind friend who I think actually doesn't know she's face blind, but she clearly is. She does not recognize people. And so whenever I see her, I I just say, Oh, hi, um, her name. And, And then I say, you know, um, I'll say something that cues her to how I know her, you know, something like, Oh, you know, I saw your son at school the other day and, and my son, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'll name my son or whatever. And, um, and then she can fill in the blanks, right? She can figure yeah. out, oh, that's who she is. A lot of people with prosopagnosia do use hair to identify people. And so um, so something for me... Like I have, for people who are watching on video, I have very distinctive hair. People always know who I am by my hair, and um, and sometimes I'll wear it up or something, and people won't recognize me because I have it, you know, up in a bun or something like that. And somehow it looks enough different that people are just like, I don't know who you are. And so, um, so just be aware that those kinds of things can have an impact on somebody who is relying on a particular feature. You know, so I think just being aware that people are queuing in on different features. There's a very famous um, autistic OT named Kim Clary, who uh, has face blindness, and she actually made a, a visual graphic of what it looks like to her, so that we could understand, and What it looked like was sort of like a cloud with rays of light sort of distorted out with individual features in it. So like eyes, you know, and a nose and but they weren't arranged, you know, spatially the way you think of a space of a face being arranged. And something that I found interesting about her discussion of it is that when she is overwhelmed, it's worse. Right, so people's faces become more distorted. So I think that's another thing to remember is that it can vary depending on the situation. So yeah. if somebody's perfectly calm and regulated, they may be able to see things more clearly or integrate everything into a coherent whole more easily. But maybe not um, if they're feeling less regulated for some reason.
0: Okay, that's great insight. Um, I found black and white in uh, thinking, um, mm. and and. The tendency for some autistic people to connect more with other autistic people. I found right. that interesting because there's a, it, there seems like a positive and a negative aspect to that, right? Like, on the one hand, it's great to connect to people that you have something in common with. On the other hand, if you're too drawn to people that you have a certain connection with, it limits your ability to mm-hmm. experience the world and really gain perspective that people that are different than than you have. So yeah. Yeah, feel free to touch on that. And then also, I, I think for the most part, it's probably a positive thing for autistic people to be able to connect to each other, especially if they're in a situation where they just don't have exposure to other autistic people. Maybe they're in a mm-hmm. really small community where they just don't know many people. So what are the ways that people can connect with each other that are autistic. Um, obviously there has to be online resources at this point, communities. And, um, I think some online communities are even not outright mentioned in the book, but there's references to people being involved in online communities.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, this is going to depend on where you live. Um, so I live outside of the Washington, D.C. metro area. And um, we have a lot of uh, groups for neurodivergent people. So, you know, one of them that I love is... is. Uh, a group called DC Peers. Um, and that is, uh, Peers is actually a program that's designed to help autistic people learn about all these uh, uh, ways of interacting with non-autistic people that can help you connect with them and, and figure out how to navigate social relationships with non-autistic people. And um, and this DC peers program has been great because she the woman who runs it is named Kathy Robertson and she has a um a it's a nonprofit and the, and she has a board of autistic people telling her what would be actually helpful for them one of the things that I find a little dangerous about focusing on connecting with people of the same neurotype, which can be, by the way, incredibly validating. So I'm I'm not saying this isn't a good thing. But if you think about who you connect with, you tend to connect with people that you share interests with. Yeah. Right. And so um, very often people, parents will come to me and say, my kid's having trouble connecting. You know, are there some social groups with other autistic kids that they can join? And the answer is yes, absolutely. You can find, you know, social skills group or whatever. Um, but the way to get kids to practice these social skills are actually in the context of something they're interested in and passionate about. Um and so um, the um, so the idea here is that, uh, it, and I'll just reference. There's there's a, a very old book. I think it's from the 90s um, by a, a pretty famous researcher named Tony Atwood, and in that book, he said that if you look at autistic people in the context of something that they're really interested in, the interactions are very reciprocal. Mm-hmm. And they are tuned into the nonverbal cues, and they maintain the relationships with people who share those interests. So they all that social stuff just looks non-autistic because it's in the context of something they're passionate about. and it maintains the interest. And so that's a good place to practice those skills of reciprocity and you know, nonverbal um Communication and relationship management, because you care about the other people, because you have this this common ground. Yeah. Um, So there's also a danger there. Um, So I I think that we talked about the very famous study where they um, did the game of telephone, Mm. uh, where they they basically said, OK, all you autistic people, I'm going to give the first person a message, and then you're going to whisper it down the line, and then we'll see what the message looks like at the last person. And they put a bunch of autistic people, and the message didn't change all that much. It changed a little bit, but not all that much from the first to the last. And then they put a bunch of non-autistic people together and they did you know, the same thing. And uh, again, the message didn't change all that much, but when they mixed neurotypes, so they had some autistic people and some non-autistic people, the message got very garbled hmm. as it went down the line. And that's the thing that we need to be careful about is to just make sure that we're truly communicating with each other. Right. Yeah. Um, so often uh, the way that autistic people understand language is different from the way that non-autistic people understand language. Non-autistic people tend to be a little more general and less specific in the way they interpret language, whereas autistic people tend to be very, um, very precise in how they think about how a particular word is defined. And this is a case where I actually relate to being autistic because I can get funny about that. And an example my husband and I are always laughing about is the difference between a couple, a few and several. So if you're not autistic, like, you use those in different contests and and so on, but for me, a couple is two, That's maybe three. Two. A few is like three to six, and several is seven and above <laughs> until you get to many. <laughs> and and uh, but that precision, nobody nobody does that. I do that. <laughs> My husband's I would, like, okay, <laughs> would,
0: I'm with you on that. I, I think yeah. a couple is two. That's what yep. I, a, a couple is. A few is like three or four, maybe several is. Yeah, five, six, seven, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I really like language. So I don't, it's not a, for me, it's more of a wanting to use, I always want to use the right word and I'll I'll shy away from using words that I should know the definition of or or that I do know that I just, I'm just not 100% sure. But I'm also not afraid to ask and, and say, I or. Admit that I don't know for sure if this is the right word, but I think it might mm-hmm. be so. But yeah, yeah. Um, a couple is and one of my friend, um, the same friend that didn't wear his contacts in high school every time. He had an issue with. The word random, and I think about mm-hmm. it all the time still, because it, when we were in high school, this is 20, 20, years ago, and. um. I'm 38 right now, so yeah, I graduated 20 years ago, and that's around the time when we were in high school, or a little bit after, people started using it as like a "That's so random." That's so random that you did this. Yeah. Like, I don't mm. think it was really used in that like kind of slang way before, and it, it's rarely used to, correctly in in those sense. Like, it's. Like yes, it's, it's not random. Like this isn't random yeah. at all. This I'm actually here intentionally so Right. It's not random. Like we specifically ended up at the same point. So it's not random that we ran into each other. But <laughs> you know, people use the word random a lot and uh Yeah, and I think they
1: yeah. mean unexpected. Yeah. as opposed to truly random. It's funny, because my training is in psychology. And of course, we do a lot of data analysis and mm-hmm. statistics. And when we're setting up experiments, we talk about randomly assigning people to different conditions for the experiments and things like that. And, you know, it's, it's about as random as we can make it, given a random number generator, which yeah. always has a, you know, a seed. And the seed means if you use the same seed, you know, more than once, then it's, it's going to, have the same outcome so it's not actually truly random
0: <laughs> yeah. so uh, I I think this was a, an example of the black and white thinking that just stood out to me the little boy who loved french fries and then eventually ate mashed potatoes I think it was and hated them and then hated potatoes period after that and would not eat anything including french fries that had potatoes in it um I, I'm really weird with food sometimes and textures mm. and uh,
2: mm.
0: like one of the foods that I'm changing my mind about it, but mayonnaise, um, I've, oh. <laughs> I've had the idea in my head that I hate mayonnaise and my girlfriend will occasionally be like, you know, that has mayonnaise in it, right? And there was a time in my <laughs> life where if somebody told me something had mayonnaise, it didn't matter how it tasted. I, w- I didn't want anything like- to do with it. And uh, <laughs> so that resonated with me at least a bit.
1: Yeah. Well, and that, that overgeneralization like that, that's actually, it's super interesting. And and yeah, you do see this in a lot of people and, and, there's um, there's a part of the book where in the sen- the chapter on sensory differences, um, you know, one of the, the quotes in there uh, was from this guy Paul McAuliffe um, from Australia, who's um, autistic himself. But it's about uh, textures and you know and how we try to explain to uh, people who don't have these sensitivities what it's like when you trick someone into you know. Um, eating some food that they don't like. And, yeah. um, and he uses the idea that it's like, you know, it, you, you tell someone they're eating carrots and they're like, oh, the carrots are pretty good. And then you say, actually, you're eating maggots. <laughs> and then you're like, yeah. oh, <laughs> I don't want to eat maggots, right? Yeah. And then they say, how about if I mash it up and mix it with other things? Yeah. Does that make it better? It's like, no, that does not help. <laughs> and I thought that was such a great metaphor because I think that, I mean, I do see that exact and what you were describing kind of feels like that right like that that you know once you found out there was mayonnaise in it you're just like oh I'm not sure I really want that anymore
0: <laughs> yeah it's way interesting it's so interesting to just learn about the things that just have little effects on people or, or great effects on people and um, it's one of those things where it's like it's it's for me I, I don't believe it's a due to any kind of condition I have or anything like that, but it's still relatable to oh, yeah. something. Like I think a lot of people have textures and things that they don't like. It just, oh, yeah. It's just not as intense as that.
1: Right. And, and that's, I think this is a very important point you're making, Artie, because um, the, the, the question is whether the difference you're experiencing causes problems for you right yeah. if it's not really causing a problem for you it's it's not a problem right yeah. but if it's causing a problem for you that's the moment where you start noticing oh i have this difference and it is definitely having an impact on my ability to you know do what i want to do in the world that's when it becomes a problem and um sometimes it can take a while to sort of figure out what it is that is having that
2: impact on
0: you yeah yeah for me it hasn't been much of a problem except Friends have always noticed my eating habits with uh, like, you know, you go to a restaurant and you order something and it's like for the longest time and I'll still order like a burger like this, like a cheeseburger, cheese and ketchup only. Nothing else. I don't want anything else on it. I can have other things and uh, I can even do lettuce and stuff like that. But to me, I never liked lettuce on on Mm -hmm. food. I'm like, it just changes the texture completely. So I'd, I'd rather not have that. Um,
2: yeah,
0: But yeah, nothing that affects my life in a great way, but something that I mean, people notice it, it is different. It is, you know.
1: Well, you know, I, I have something called synesthesia, mm. um, which I do discuss in that chapter on co-occurring conditions. It's, it's pretty common in autism, but where I actually taste shapes. Mm. So, um, and my whole life. So part of the deal is like, you don't know that you're different until you start talking to other people about yeah. this thing, so I didn't even know that that was a difference. Like I just thought that's everybody tasted that way. And for me, shapes can be round or they can be pointy or sharp. Um, and And there's a dimension that feels very. Uh, shape. I mean, shapes are the best description for how I'm experiencing that. Yeah. And um, when I was in college, I remember discovering, oh, other people don't taste things this way. <laughs> and and they started making fun of me because they thought it was so hilarious that I would describe something as round or square or, you know, whatever I would describe, you know, sharp edges. And um, they just, they they thought it was really funny, but I had no idea it was a difference. And it certainly didn't, you know, have an impact on me at all. I still ate food and I was able to nourish myself. So it wasn't a negative impact. It was just a difference.
0: So the food would have shapes to you? Like, mm-hmm. OK. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it
1: invokes a shape like in my mm-hmm. head, yeah, right? A geometric
0: shape. That's the exact same thing as because it, it can manifest in different ways, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. I think the electronic artist, dubstep artist Skrillex has that with. Uh, yes. I can't remember exactly what his is, but he like sees color with music. And-
1: color and music are very often crossed like that. So you'll hear a lot of people experience music with colors yeah. or visual, some kind of visual representation. Um, so you'll hear that kind. That that's actually a pretty common kind of synesthesia, and it actually makes people you know enjoy the music more yeah. right because they have this visual experience while they're listening to
0: it it's, um, it's something i wish it's one of those things i i wish i could experience that i wish yeah. i can like listen to music and um yeah see things i I've, I've done some psychedelics in my life so i uh-huh. i yeah. have experienced that to some degree and i've gone to yeah. raves and um they have a visual aspect to the music, and I've, yes. I've always very much enjoyed that visual aspect of music. And um, I, I think I do see music a little bit differently. Like I can, I don't know, I, I. You experience it. I experience music a little bit differently than mo- some people I'd imagine, mm-hmm. but not like that, where it's like you're experiencing a color just from listening to it. Normal. And I think that would be fun. <laughs> so.
1: You know, one of my favorite artists is a woman named Lori Anderson. And she does a lot of, uh, I mean, her art is very, she's a musician, uh, started out life being trained as a, I think, a classical violinist, but there's always a visual component to what she does. And I love going to her performances because it's a visual experience. Yeah. You know, you really, she, she really thinks about how to make the visual uh, experience of the audience reflect the message or the music that she's creating, and it's super powerful.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, for me, I, I think there's definitely a connection between vision and music. Like for sure, I, one can easily inspire the other. Um, mm-hmm. I wish I was as a capable visual artist. I'm. I'm not. I, maybe eventually I'll get there. Like I think. Yeah. Like I can make music and stuff like that, but I think it'd be really cool to be able to program uh, a visual aspect to go along with the music. And it's mm-hmm. something I've touched on it, but not not to the extent where I've, I've seen people make some visual presentations that are amazing. I, I yeah. watched one the other yeah. day with like, a it was like drapes of led lights. Um mm-hmm in a circle and then they also go down on the ground and it was this amazing experience of this visual experience of connecting with music and like they would have like faces show up on the led lights and stuff like that it was really cool so
1: wow wow yeah
0: i I love visual art and, and music and how they can connect so
1: yeah, well, and the motion that you're describing too, like there's the imagery and then there's also the motion of the uh, visual experience reflecting the the audit, you yeah. know, the audio experience as well. And when you have those two things integrated, yeah. Um it's really a powerful experience. And you know, um, it's actually so in a past life, I actually worked with people who had had traumatic brain injuries. And I was studying how people understood spoken language. Mm. And one of the things we do is we integrate what we see with what we're hearing. And so a lot of people will focus very much on the mouth And look at how the mouth is moving um, to help them understand the auditory signal that they're hearing. And when that integration works, you know, looking at somebody's face can help you understand what they're saying a little better because you can see when they're saying mm versus mm. Right yeah. Which sounds really similar, but you know with an m, your lips are together with with an n, your tongue is touching the roof of your mouth, and so they look different, so it helps you understand what they're saying more clearly when those two streams get separated and they're no longer integrated like that it, it can cause problems for comprehension
0: mm. It kind of makes me think of video editing a little bit when I'm doing. Mm-hmm editing a video sometimes it seems like the mouth and the words are off and for me at least it's it's very difficult to when it's close but just off a little bit I actually have a very hard time telling is it is the audio or the video delayed I can't really tell Mm -hmm. which is which in in which direction it's off and I just have to tweak it a little bit and then sometimes Even after I tweak it, I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's on now, but now that I've been listening to it off, like there's a part of me that can't (laughs) tell anymore if if there's something off and yeah. Wow. Yeah
1: that's you know that's it's interesting you say that i i actually cannot stand dubbed movies where mm. it's in one language and then the dubbing is in english or whatever i would rather have subtitles yeah. because the disconnect between the way the mouth is moving and uh what they're saying drives me totally batty
0: yeah <laughs> um an unusually strong moral compass was something mm-hmm. that's mentioned and it's another thing that uh kind of like that black and white thinking and wanting to actually just to go back to the wanting to be around people i found what you said really interesting and and it makes sense to me like if you have two people and you're putting them together because they're autistic and you assume that they're going to connect over that but they both have intense interests that don't overlap at all there could be a problem there, there's gonna be no connection there i mean there, yes. there might be some in some way but they're just gonna they're gonna have more trouble connecting than one of the autistic people hanging out with somebody who's not autistic neurotypical, but doesn't, that has some overlap in those interests. So I, I just found yeah. that very interesting.
1: I, I can't, overemphasize the importance of that point. And, you know, here's an example I like to give. I don't know if we said this in the book, but when I'm talking to um, people I work with, um, then I'll say something like, you know, you meet somebody with a broken leg, and you have a broken leg, like you can identify and talk about what it's like to have a broken leg. But, you know, if they are somebody who, you know, is interested in one thing, and that's not something you're totally into, like, you can you have a common interest in navigating life with a broken leg, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to like that person, yeah, right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. With the moral compass, I I found that interesting because it makes sense. I I know people who are on the spectrum that are, you know, more morally inclined to feel a certain way about something,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it there's also kind of there seems to be a risk there too because. We all have different moral frameworks. So that moral framework that is built around your thinking or that your thinking is built around is really going to affect what you feel injustice about, what you feel is not fair. And if that deviates too far from what is accepted as fair and uh, Mm. justified, then it, it could cause problems with that person potentially reconciling what they see in the world and and sometimes that is justified too right um but there can also be something that is fair isn't understood um in a simple sense and and needs to you need to sometimes things seem unfair but you dig a little deeper and it's like okay it's not unfair it's it's there's these other things that affect it yeah and that this is just kind of a natural way things end up. And uh, yeah, a moral compass and the framework that you've built that compass on seems pretty vital to that. And I think everybody, not everybody, but people have moral frameworks passed down to them that are distorted and sometimes are, you know... distorted to one degree, some degree or another. And it it's not intentional. Usually it's just, right. No one has a clear picture of everything. It's just not even right. possible. Right.
1: Right. You only know what you know. Yeah. Right. And, um, you only, I, I mean, that's, that's boy, that's just true of life in general. Like yeah. you can never know all the factors that are contributing to a situation playing out the way it does. Yeah. But, um, You know, one thing I I do really love about my autistic friends who have that strong moral compass is that if I'm having a dilemma that I'm trying to piece my way through and I, you know, I respect their their framework, it's really helpful to talk to them about it because they can point out ways of thinking about it that I might not have come up with on my own just because that's the lens through which they're seeing the situation.
0: Yeah. I found one reference in the book, just interesting, the Dan Aykroyd reference, Mm -hmm. where you mention him having an intense interest in ghosts and fighting uh, crime. And then (laughs) it goes on to act in Ghostbusters. Um, Just really interesting. I actually didn't know he was autistic until Mm -hmm. I read the book. And Mm. um, I pulled up an interview with him and started watching it a little bit, and I'm It's interesting because I I love comedians. I love comedy and comedians tend to be very eccentric people in in general. And like some of my favorite comedians are like non-normal people at all. Like they're, they're not somebody most comedians are not normal people. Like they're they're insanely funny. And, and sometimes it's these quirks and they're, in their personalities and traits that make them so funny. And
1: well, because they see the world, I mean, often what's so funny about comedy is it points out uh, the things about life that are kind of absurd. Right. And that takes a stepping back from the situation and looking at it, you know, in a different way. Right. I, there's, (laughs) One of my favorite comedians who talking about being a, a weirdo, is <laughs> Stephen Wright, I don't know if you know him, but mm-hmm. he talks in a very sing-songy way like this. It's very hard to listen to him talking. Um, and But he's hilarious. And he, I'll just tell you one of my favorite quotes of his, which is, I used to think the brain was the most amazing organ. I'm totally not saying it the right way. And then I thought about which organ was telling me that. <laughs> right? That just takes that's pretty an good. ability to step back, right? Yeah. And and look at things, you know, in a different way. Because that's a lot of times they're poking at, you know, these norms that we just unwittingly adopt. Yeah. And I think autism is very well suited for that. Because they do tend to sort of think, oh, why is that the norm? Like, I don't understand why people would be, you know, think that thing was important or whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah, the the ability to just focus in on things, and um, I think another one of Dan Aykroyd's, uh intense interests is aliens and UFOs, stuff like that. And
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, the, it's so interesting to have people. Well, we all have our own interests, like even neurotypical people. We ha- all have our own interests and. It's one of the beauties of life is that we don't all have the same interests because,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, I mean, it wouldn't, this podcast and other podcasts like it wouldn't even be possible if that were the case because there'd be nothing to talk about. Because the reason right. we're talking here is because you have a whole body of knowledge that I don't have that I find interesting. And mm-hmm. of course, we have some, uh, probably things we, we agree on and can really connect over, but then, um, I probably have some insights that you don't have, and then you have Absolutely. a bunch of knowledge that I don't have. So it it makes the conversation fun. And I I think of when I think of like conversations, I think of like circles, right? So like you have two circles and that represents the knowledge that the people have, and then you have those intersection of the circles to mm-hmm. some degree or or another. Mm-hmm. And what makes that conversation so interesting isn't isn't the stuff always in the center. It's, it's the, the, the stuff the like on the outer skirts. It's yes. like outside and it's like, oh, I, you, you can inform me about that. We can talk about that. And yeah. and uh, even things that people have in common, there's insights that are gained from the other person and, and ways of looking at it. It,
2: mm-hmm. it.
0: It's why I love conversation. And it, mm. I mean, I love books, but honestly, the be- ability to read someone's book like yours and then talk to you about it is just it tops it so much for me like i love the book and one of the things i love about books is um i'm a scatterbrain person so i am all over the place with the way i think i don't i would like to maybe write a book although i don't know what it'd mm-hmm. be about um but the what i love about books is people organize their ideas in such a coherent way very often mm. when they write a book, so you can follow things and just make sense of what they're trying to say, and really get a mm-hmm. get a good grasp around the idea that they're trying to express. And I I love books for that reason, but then being able to talk to somebody who wrote the book, it's quite a privilege too.
1: Yeah, and you know when you're writing too, I. Uh, The nature of written language is so different from the nature of spoken language. So in communication, we can follow a thread that we're interested in. In a book, I don't know what the reader might pick up on, right? and so I have to provide the structure for them so that they can find the parts that will speak to them. and this is for nonfiction I'm talking about, not fiction. Um, yeah. Obviously, fiction, you have to follow an arc and all that. But, um, but the, the, the nice thing about conversation is you can respond to what you hear and what the other person is saying and follow your interest. Oh, that's interesting. Why did you say that? What, what led you to think that?
0: Um, right. Um, one of the things I really found interesting was the touch, touch sensitivity. And mm. being where light touch can be like problematic, and then mm-hmm. deep touch um, is not problematic. Yeah, it can be pleasurable or even or just neutral. Um, can you can you go into that a little bit? Because I it's just so interesting. Like I can understand. I can understand maybe like light touch being a little weird, but I it, that's a, something that's a little bit hard to. Yeah, put myself in their shoes.
1: Because you don't have that, that same experience, right? Um, yeah, it's so first of all, it's important to remember, those are actually different neural pathways. So light touch is different, it it taps into a different part of your nervous system than deep touch does, Mm -hmm. right? So deep touch triggers different sensors. Um, so that's, that's one way sort of physiologically to think about it. Um, and, uh, it it's funny because i i think i i have i think we quote a friend of mine in there um who who says you know light touch hard pass she says hard pass on light touch <laughs> she just really can't take it my younger son is funny about it he does so for example when he was in school and somebody would brush against him unef- unexpectedly in the hallway to him it was actually physically painful. Hmm. Physically painful. And so then he would react with this big reaction. This is much better as he's gotten older by the way. He does not have the same response now. And actually now he kind of craves tickling and you know just that kind of that kind of light touch as long as the intent is not aggressive. And I think part of what happened, you know, in the hallway at school is A, it was unexpected and B, he didn't understand the intention behind it. Was it a neutral intention and they just bumped into him or were they deliberately sort of brushing against him to be a little aggressive? He couldn't distinguish the intent behind it. And so I think some of that drove his response. But he said, like, we couldn't tickle him. And also when he was a little baby, we couldn't stroke him softly to calm him down that did not calm him down it made him much more dysregulated yeah. and so we had to learn like he needed <laughs> he wanted to be in a papoose right he wanted to be like you know lots of deep deep you know pressure and so we learned to bundle him really tight in a blanket so he would just feel regulated right yeah. um but he didn't love you know just the soothing touch that so, so many babies find you know helpful and regulating he did not find it like that and he would say that you know as he got older he would say that it was physically painful for him to experience that and there are other people who experience deep pressure that way deep touch you know yeah. a, a deep a big bear hug or you know something like that appear you know they they will perceive that as painful yeah. so yeah these sensory differences honestly it took me a long time to wrap my head around that You know, each sense has its separate pathways and therefore can be under responsive, over responsive, anywhere in between. And then there's the seeking aspect of it, like you seek that kind of touch, right? Which is a separate domain from the response, you know, how responsive you are in that domain. And we didn't get into this in the book, but even within a given domain, you can have multiple pathways. So I'll use vision because we were talking about that earlier. Your color, receptors are different than your motion receptors for yeah. vision, right? And so you will have people who are very sensitive to motion and actually find it dysregulating or they may really enjoy it. So you'll see people who enjoy like s- splashing water and the, the the look of the light through the water as it falls back down. They just love that. Um, other people find it very dysregulating. Um, And, you know, but then color, you know, that's a totally different visual pathway that people can have different responses to and red receptors are different than blue receptors, you know, so, you know, there's all these differences, even within a given sensory domain. Um, And for me. I think I, I I had a little bit of black and white thinking myself about this. It was like either every sensory domain was oversensitive or every um, domain was under responsive. And it took me a while to realize, oh, each domain and even within each domain, there's different levels of Responsiveness to that kind of oh. stimulation, and I, I just don't think we're used to thinking about the world like that, but you know once you sort of wrap your mind around it you you realize it just has to be true it has to be that way, yeah. and especially physiologically, when you look at the different pathways, there are different pathways, yeah. so they get you know hooked up differently for different people
0: when oh something that comes to my mind with like the light touch and and deep touch is uh how, at least me, how I might greet somebody or approach somebody mm-hmm. if I know them versus if I don't know them. If I mm-hmm. know somebody and I'm walking up behind them, for instance, I'm probably likely to give them a nice, firm, like, pat on the back and say mm-hmm. hello, turn around, yeah. hug them, versus if I'm approaching somebody that I don't know, I'm yeah, more likely to touch them lightly to get their attention mm-hmm. and. And that might be triggering to somebody who has a sensory issue with that. So it's, it's something to really, it's, it's good to
1: have that information.
0: Yeah. Um, Well,
1: and with touch, I mean, I, I think, I think it's because of my own children that I learned to always ask permission before touching anybody. Right. And and as you get to know them, you you understand their response to things. So like if you have a friend who when you go to hug them and they kind of go like that, you realize, okay, that's that person is not a huggy person. Don't do that. (laughs) Right. And so, but I I have many friends who will say, Are you a hugger? You know, and you know, before they give me a hug, like they'll just ask that very respectful question. And so I think more of us could do that.
0: Yeah. But hugging is also a weird one, in my opinion, because well, it's, it's gotten
1: weirder too, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: it's it's to me, it's not a a sensory thing. It's a it's a social thing. So it's like but it's
1: a connection thing.
0: Yeah, it's like I don't mind hugging people, but then
2: mm-hmm.
0: I kind of hate. The, I don't mind hugging people I, I like and that I know, but right. sometimes there's an awkwardness about like, Oh, am I supposed to hug this person or not? Um, even mm-hmm. if I'm okay with hugging them, it's like, is it yeah. appropriate to hug this person? Uh, is it, right. uh, like, do I want to hug this person?
2: <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's
0: a, there's a social aspect that makes hugging like a little bit trickier in my opinion. <laughs>
1: It's very tricky and and honestly, I think um men with women or with somebody they might be attracted to in a non friendship way, yeah makes that even more complex yeah. right um and and so again, a hug can be misinterpreted, and yeah. so you have to be yeah. so careful, like for me, with my you know cis female friends, like it's perfectly fine to hug you know, it's clearly just a friendship thing, but yeah um it it definitely uh uh can be seen you know as inappropriate in different contexts certainly in a professional context for example you wouldn't yeah. hug somebody if you were you know in in your professional mode or whatever yeah. so yeah. unless you knew them really really well
0: yeah um depression being more common in autistic oh males than neurotypical males but then women neuro, uh, autistic women having around the same rate of depression as neurotypical women like what explains that like why do we see that
1: <laughs> i wish i knew the answer to that and it's very real and very challenging yeah um and you know that that part of the co-occurring conditions chapter Um, It was very hard for me to research because the suicide rate is so much higher in autistic people than it is in non-autistic people. And I think that's this sense of disconnection from the world and from other people. And one of the things about autistic women is that because they mask uh, more often than autistic men, um, then I think they're able to find connection perhaps um, in ways that autistic men may have a harder time with. Um, there are boy, the, it's such a complicated question. Mm-hmm. I, I think there are social norms around friendships and um, you know, and and then also around relationships that shape, you know, how men can relate to other people versus how women can relate to other people. And there's hardly any research on, You know, any other (laughs) gender or attraction or any of that stuff, um, you know, how that plays out. Um, But I can tell you that um, for whatever reason, I think the women, because they have the ability to navigate the social piece of it, I think it allows them a little more feeling of belonging. And the men have a harder time with that. And these are all just totally gross over generalizations so i kind of hate talking about gender yeah. in this way but um but you know it does play out and look different in different different genders so
0: yeah and, uh, one of the common things with women versus men is women tend to at least be raised and and grow up around if, if they're around other women in an atmosphere that talking about emotion is yeah normal. And, yeah and I think this is changing with generations too. I think if you go like older generations of men are very, it's way more common to find men who just never talk about their feelings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think it's still more prevalent around among like younger men. Um, boys are cruel young boys are very cruel and oh, the, we, yeah. we, we make fun of each other for like the dumbest things. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, yes. And, and women make fun of each other too. Like, don't get me wrong. And, and women can be it's, harsh to each other in, in a very, it's different a different
1: way. thing. Yeah. Cause yeah. the women. So, and the, I mean, honestly, autistic women really have it rough in middle school, for example, because very often the, I, I have two boys, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm a woman myself. And so um, watching my sons, like boys are pretty overt. They're like, you know, if, they, if they're if they going to be jerks to you, they're just going to be jerks yeah. to you, right? And you know where you stand. Like if, you know, they don't like you, you kind of know it. And yeah. they'll be jerks, right? And And that can be hard to navigate. But with women, what will happen is superficially, they'll act like they like you. But they actually don't like you. Yeah. And behind your back, they're saying things. And you know, if you're socially skilled enough to detect the deception in the, you know superficial connection, right? If you can detect that that's not sincere, um because you're good at reading those cues yeah. then it makes it easier to navigate oh i need to be careful with that person and not reveal anything that could be held against me or whatever like just being careful but if you have trouble with that that can make it really hard to understand why suddenly you know this person who said they were your friend in this situation is not being your friend in that situation and that can happen with boys too for sure that definitely yeah. does happen with boys but uh girls there's a whew, there's a level of deceptiveness in the interaction that can be very hard to navigate
0: yeah girls can be i don't know if caddy is the word but caddy yeah. kind of comes to mind where it's oh. like um yeah it's like superficial niceness and right um being being a male, it took me a long time to pick up on that like i've I've had right. female friends my whole life, and I've had girlfriends at different times. I have a girlfriend now we've been together a long time, and uh i she's a very sensitive person, and mm-hmm. um she's opened my eyes to how different women act and mm-hmm. it's weird like if if there's a a group of friends i've i've been in this situation a group of friends and um my girlfriend for instance wasn't a part of that group of friends like a larger group where i'm close to some pe- people close not too close with others but there's a mix of um uh, different genders in there and mm-hmm. you bring a a girl who's not in the in group into the group and there's they're accepting but at the same time it you can tell it's not complete acceptance um Mm -hmm. they want to be in they want to stay in their clique a little bit more and not be completely Mm -hmm. open to the newcomer and and uh but it there's this superficiality to it where it's like uh, they're they seem like they're okay with her but then there's this aspect this air that you can feel where it's like they're not quite whereas men it's like if we don't like you it's like I just avoid somebody I don't like I don't yeah, I'm not going to talk yeah. to them I'm not going to pretend right. to like them or um yeah anything like that it's just I'm just going to avoid you I don't care for you you know and, and that's how most men tend to be I think mm-hmm. so.
1: hmm yeah and and navigating those differences. And it's important to remember too, that a lot of this is culturally bound. Yeah. So, you know, different cultures are going to have different uh, ways of expressing those uh, or different ways of interacting with yeah. other people. Um, and so uh, learning the context in which you apply the different rules can be uh something i mean it takes a lot of work to figure out okay this context demands this behavior and also i need to be looking for these things i i have a friend who um she was in grad school in computer science and she went to japan um for she got you know, a very prestigious internship over there. And she got over there and she proposed a project. She was there for three months. And they said, oh, yes, we really like this project. This is a great project. And so she kept trying to move ahead on it. And every time she tried to move ahead, there was some blockade, some reason she couldn't move ahead. And by the end of the summer, she had gotten absolutely nothing done. And But she had made a friend who was Japanese. And her friend explained to her that in Japan, we never say no. We just make it difficult for you to get the work done. And so you have to read that subtle cue Mm. of, you know, people are getting in the way of you accomplishing your goal. That's actually how they say no. And it's considered very rude to just say no. Whereas in our culture, it's considered rude not to say no, right? Like you should just be clear about what your statements are, you know, or your feelings are and, you know, say no when you mean no, right? Yeah. It's, it's, these things are so culturally determined and bound. And so learning to read the different situations, even within a culture can be hard. You know, you you and I are talking about American male mm. and female interactions, but yeah. different cultures may have different expectations.
0: Yeah. And, and it's so interesting too, when you look at other cultures and see those differences and, and how things are communicated or not communicated and, and uh, yeah. Yeah. It, very interesting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, something that really resonated me, with me, and it was specifically mentioned with ADHD. And I, I don't know mm. if people who don't have ADHD have this. The wording in the book made it sound like it's autistic people with ADHD that experience this. Uh, Rejection sensitive dysphoria. Um, oh,
1: that's ADHD with or without autism. It's both okay. for yeah. sure. It's a big deal.
0: I, I'm pretty like, I've never heard of it before this, but, um, mm-hmm. I read that and I'm like, I like ran to my girlfriend. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I have this. Like, yeah. because when I, if I text somebody and I'm, I'm aware of like people are living their lives, like if I send yeah. somebody a message or send somebody an email and there is a delay in getting a response. Like, I, mm-hmm. it's not like I expect to get a response right away, but if a few days goes by, I get kind of like a panicky. I can walk mm-hmm. away from an interaction um, and know for sure that it was a positive interaction for the other person. Mm-hmm. But then I can reach out and there's not a response, as you know, there's a delay in a response. And, um, I can get panicky and and feel yeah. like um, I've done something to offend the person, or or the person doesn't like me, or they found out something about me that they don't like, and they just don't want right. to associate. With, like I get like very bad like this. Um,
1: yeah, you're not alone.
0: <laughs> yeah, and um, it, it's I've have I have friends that I've had for ten, twenty years. And I'll get this way with him. And it's like, yeah. they've been my friend for 20 years. It's pretty unlikely that they're going to walk away from a friendship over something that I'm not even aware of. Um, right. Or, or a little interaction that didn't go quite positive because there's been so many positive interactions. And but or um, because I, I I do tend to be outspoken and I'll express a view and like I worry that everyone is going to hate me because they disagree with my opinion on something or I it's, yeah. it's, it's very bad. Like it's not enjoyable. Um, no. And, yeah. and it's always been kind of out of my control to at least mm-hmm. a degree. Like I've been able to, uh, logically think things through, um, mm-hmm. and, and see some errors in my, the way that I'm thinking of things. Like there was a time mm-hmm. I remember I had some friends who were throwing some parties at their house and they were having a good time. And it was during a stage in my life where I was a little bit more um, isolated from people and me doing that. Like I wasn't being Mm -hmm. very social. And then I would get these kind of like resentment feelings like that I wasn't invited to, Mm. to things. And I'm like, well, I thought about it. And I'm like, well, it makes sense that I'm not being invited because people aren't. When people go in and invite somebody to a party, they're not inviting their whole phone book. They're usually inviting all the people that they've been around lately. And if I haven't been around, it doesn't mean that I'm not friends with them. It just means yeah. that, yeah. You know, should I text Artie? He hasn't showed up to like the last few things that we've done. You know, it, it's it's not anything aimed at me, but it's hard not to take things personal sometimes, even though they're not. That way,
1: that brought up so much for me. That discussion. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, A lot of people who experience um, rejection sensitive dysphoria, or RSD, you'll see it um, referred to sometimes, uh, sort of experience it as a flash, right? Like you have the realization that you're being rejected, and it's just like immediately, like oh. That feels terrible, yeah. right? Whereas other people, it's like a slow progression up. And I find with RSD that very often it's that very quick response that it's very hard to be rational on the way
2: up because you go up so fast. Do you experience that? Yeah, it's because um, I'm, I'm a
0: very uh, I have confidence like I'm not. Lacking confidence completely, right, but right, right. Um, it's like this. An example: I'll share something online, and it's not mm-hmm. even. I, I'm not even talking about something that I wrote or, or I created. But if I share something that I feel offers some insight into my humor or, or something like that, and it's more with people I know that I'm. I mm-hmm. feel this. Uh, rejection sensitivity, but maybe I'll post something, and I'm I'm getting better at like not just just not worrying about it. Like I'm sharing mm-hmm. something because I feel like sharing it. I don't really care what people how people respond yeah. to it anymore. Or I can give you an example. I I shared on I started releasing some of the music that I've created, and I've always mm-hmm. had this um I I have doubts about the quality of the music, even though I've had a lot of people hear my music and be like, this is really good. You should start posting this on uh, Mm -hmm. Spotify and all that. Finally got around to doing that. I'm doing it slowly. I posted something that included my song in the background, and it wasn't even like an enticing post. Like It was literally like a graph. I found this AI (laughs) application that can analyze your music because I'm not good with genres. I'm like, well, what kind of music am mm. i making i, I want to know so i found this ai application um cyanite i think is the name of it anyway it analyzes it so i posted some screenshots of the graphs that it shows and they're just uh-huh. white and a little color on some of the um the graphs it'll have like according to time how exciting is it how you know, mellow is it at times Mm. and then it'll go by genres and different things like that. And I posted it and, um, like shortly after posting it, you know, my sister liked it finally. And I usually don't pay attention to who's liking everything, but, Mm um, I, I text her. I was like, Marissa, is my, uh, is my music trash? (laughs) Like I did that way in my head. And it, and, and, um she's like no and she's like well what are you trying to make and I'm like a song like I'm not trying to make anything like specific I'm not trying to make anything that somebody else has created or a specific genre but I get that all the time where I'm just like it, you know um, yeah I just if I don't get a response like I would feel great if like everyone I knew is like, Oh, I like this. And like, it would make me feel great. Mm -hmm. But I know that's not like, I know people are going through their lives. Some people aren't going to see this. Some people aren't like for various reasons. Um, and people don't, some people, times people like something and don't hit that like button and don't say anything. And, um, but I, I experience it quite a lot. And with a podcast, it's another thing. Um, it takes time to grow. And um, I'm also an impatient person, which doesn't help (laughs) with that. Um, And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a mental battle. I I would say this podcast is one of the hardest mental challenges I've taken on in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think I'll be way better off for it in the long term. And I've already, my resilience has already increased a lot. My negative self-talk um, Good. and my, my self-perception, it's yeah. not, not quite there yet. Like I, I struggle with that. And I was talking to my friend the other day and I'm, I'm a social person in general. I am not lacking in social skills. I can get along with a lot of people. And I kind of told him, cause he's going through a hard point right now. Mm-hmm. And I was telling him, I'm like, just so you know, like I have negative self-talk and, and doubts about myself constantly like
2: mm.
0: it's bad and i have a great girlfriend who is very um she's my little cheerleader you know like she mm-hmm. she really makes me feel better she she helps me when i'm having those moments of doubt like i i don't know if i can do she definitely helps me be able to do the things that i do because wow i'm being alone and not having someone like her to talk me out of some of the ways that I think would, mm-hmm. it'd be a lot harder. Um, so I owe her a lot in that sense. But I, it was just explaining to him. I'm like, I suffer from all of that stuff. Like, yeah, I walk away from social situations feeling like the other person thought I was a dumbass. You know, <laughs> like all the time. <laughs> like. And and I'm, I know I'm not unintelligent and I love having conversations with people that are very intelligent like yourself. And uh, I feel very capable of having those conversations, but it doesn't stop you from having those self-doubts and negative perception. And, and I feel like the rejection sensitivity ties into that, you know, like, um,
1: you know, there's another piece to it, which I'll just share because I'm, a bit older than you are um by almost exactly 20 years so um as you get older that uh uh dependence on the judgment of others for your own sense of self worth gets better yeah so so you know as i've gotten older I am, I mean, I still worry all the time about whether I'm doing something that hurts somebody, like I don't want to ever hurt somebody. Um, And, um, but I, uh, at the same time, like I also have a better sense of, you know, okay, that person didn't like what I did. But I still think it was an important thing to do and needed to be done or whatever. You know, like I have a stronger sense of myself and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and, And it definitely comes with age, you know. And so it's hard to tell someone who's much younger, you know, don't be so hard on yourself, you know, don't like people used to say that to me all the time. I was like, okay, well, how? Yeah. <laughs> how do I not be so hard on myself, right? And the answer is, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Like, for me, it's just come with age and experience. And you know, I also wanted to reflect to you how lovely it is that you have your girlfriend in your life. Yeah. Because I, I think a good partner is somebody who helps us be our best selves. Yeah and it feels like you've got that and it's it's an amazing thing.
0: Yeah, I'm very very grateful for who she is. And um, we've had our issues and um we have our areas of disagreement of and course. we have our areas of conflict, but uh for the most part she, I mean, she adds a lot of value to my life and hopefully I add a lot of t- to hers too. I think I yeah. do, but you know, I feel like I got I feel like I get more of the benefit than she does. <laughs> might disagree, but uh, she she's she's very uh, encouraging as a person, so I love it. Um, you touched on this a little bit earlier. I can't remember exactly what you were saying, but you didn't call this by what you label it in the book, but um, adaptive functioning being more important than uh, like, IQ and cognitive ability. Um, for sure. I found that so interesting because I think with autism, at least in our now, at least autism isn't conflated with a lack of intelligence so much anymore. Um, most people understand that people who are autistic can be extremely intelligent. Um, right. Actually, I would like, because I, I think Elon Musk, has asperger's if I'm not mistaken yeah. and, and you touched on Asperger's earlier and you mentioned that there is an older understanding of asperger's asperger's is a type of autism correct
1: yeah let me let me describe this so um so I mentioned Lorna wing earlier in the interview um who was a researcher in the UK um who found a subtype of people who were having trouble who met. You know, these diagnostic criteria that we go through in the book, um, but who had normal um, or average to above average intelligence, but were still having trouble making their way in the world. Mm. And um, there's a really amazing book that I love called Neurotribes by Steve Silberman. And um, it, it It's an incredible book. It goes through the history of autism. And he starts back in the 17th century with, um, I can't remember the name of of the chemist, but anyway, a a scientist who basically discovered uh, gravitational uh, forces. And, um, you know, talks about him and then goes all the way up through modern times um, and our views of autism through the ages and the label. Mm -hmm. So Hans Asperger was a... um, uh, a doctor who worked in Austria, Vienna Austria at a hospital and had a subset of clients who were this this type of uh, person with the average to above average, uh, you know, IQ, which only measures measures very particular kinds of thinking, and I think that's really important. That IQ only measures what it measures. Yeah. So, whatever test, you know, maybe it measures spatial ability or verbal ability or whatever, um, but it only measures what it measures. And there are many, many kinds of intelligence that are much harder to measure. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he had this subset of kids under his care who definitely were struggling with the social side of things, but, you know, did fine in school or whatever. Um, and so he, anyway, uh, because it was world war two when a lot of this was happening. Um, and the Nazis, uh, one of the first groups of people, the Nazis went after, um, were people with disabilities because yeah. they were polluting the gene pool. And, um, and so, um, they asked uh, doctors for, you know, lists of all their disabled people that under their care so they could kill them. And so Hans Asperger was trying to protect his people, and he did have other, you know, more typically autistic people under his care, um, the ones we were talking about who are more interior and, um, you know, just... Uh, you know, need to do more to self-regulate um, than than perhaps the ones who are able to blend in a little better. Yeah. And um, he gave the names of those uh, to the Nazis, but not the kids who uh, had that average to above-average IQ because he said they could be useful in the war effort. So he was trying to protect the autistic people under his care. Um, and uh, unfortunately, you know, I mean. Uh, uh, but he was, you know, he sent people to die. Yeah. <laughs> and so the autistic community really hates the term Asperger's syndrome now um, uh-huh. because of that connection. So so now what people like to talk about, and we do talk about this in the book, the diagnostic criteria do talk about, um, what do they call it? levels of functioning, which is also kind of offensive. <laughs> and so what yeah. I like to talk about instead is level of uh, support needs, right? How much support do you need to get through the day, right? And, and it's not a, as judgmental a thing, because, you know, calling somebody functional versus not functional, well, if I was navigating life with your kind of a brain, then, you know, I might look more or less functional than somebody navigating the world with my kind of brain, right? Like, yeah. it, it's just, you know, talking about what is Functional or not, um, and levels of functioning is is um, pejorative. Um, so anyway, we talk about these um, level of support needs, and the the kids who Hans Asperger was trying to protect were, you know, what are called uh, people who have fewer of these support needs, right? These external supports needed. Um, however, many of them can have trouble with these activities of daily living. Um, often for sensory reasons, but also for reasons of not seeing the point. Um, So just as an example, um, you know, I have clients who do not see the point of showering regularly. They're just like, why? Why why do I need to Mm. shower? They just don't understand why other people care whether they smell good or not, like, who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. I'm still, you know, me and, you know, the great person I am, or why should I brush my teeth? Doesn't matter. And you talk about health issues and things like that, but, um, they may see it as a waste of time. And, um, and that has an impact on your ability to get a job, you know, on your health. Um, you know, it can have all these unintended impacts. And um, so that that those activities of daily living can be really important. Now, I just talked about hygiene because that's one people will remark on in reports and things like that. Um yeah. Partly because hygiene, lack of hygiene, can be a sign that somebody is suffering you know, decompensating because of mental illness, yeah. um, right? And so when you're evaluating somebody in front of you, there's a difference between a change in self-care versus somebody who's just like, I don't see the point of this. Like, why? Yeah. Why would I? you know, bother doing this. That's one of the activities of daily living. But there's so many others. There's things like being able to navigate the community, being able to take care of your house, doing your laundry, you know, being able to pay your bills on time, like all these things that just have to do with making your way in the world. And again, what happens with some autistic people is that they just don't see the point. They're just like, why? I can remember listening to this hilarious, um, comment from, uh, the student at Berkeley who, um, he's autistic and he, he's non-speaking. Um, but he communicates through a device and he was giving a talk, uh, and Berkeley, by the way, you know, does a great job supporting people with disabilities. And so, um, anyway, he, he was talking about, you know, being a student at UC Berkeley, and he's now in graduate school, actually, at Vanderbilt University. So very, you know, accomplished guy. Um, but he talked about the useless activities of a daily living and how he needed other people to help him with the useless activities of daily living. So yeah. for some people, they're not useless, like they're what allow us to stay in a house, right? You have to pay the rent every month or you're going to be unhoused, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so... You know, they're not useless unless you don't understand the connection between, you know, doing the thing and, you know, the fact that it will have impact on your future self. Right.
0: Yeah. I can, I can see how, I mean, you can be really intelligent and really capable of achieving great things, but that can really impact your success because if you have maybe bills piling up that you're not paying, the consequences of that get increasingly worse over time and take up more and more of your time. Oh, yeah. And affect way more aspects of your life. Um, Absolutely. I can definitely understand that. And it's just a very interesting and, of course, nuanced thing to point out that I really like about the book is just that you do such a good job of explaining things and, and making it clear that one thing is like in this case the adaptive functioning really being what holds some people back and it and not being a a matter of intelligence or anything like that just like with not being able to explain what's going on in your body is not a lack of yeah vocabulary and and ability to communicate
1: right you know i want to say one more thing about that um too which is um it's definitely not a lack of intelligence and um, it it uh, there are different kinds of intelligence, but um, the I, I just think back to you know if if you were wealthy and male, you know, in the early nineteen hundreds, And then I'll just take England as an example. Like You you think about the typical way that professors at Cambridge or Oxford or somewhere like that are treated. These are very smart people. Um, Somebody else is cooking for them. Somebody else is doing all the housework for them um, and they can pursue their interests because they're wealthy, right? And um, there are other people dealing with those activities of daily living, but here in America, Mostly, we have to do those for ourselves. And some people are really good at them and some people are not. And typically, the people who took care of that kind of stuff were women, Mm -hmm. um, but also servants, you know, depending on when you were living. And and they took care of all those activities of daily living. But now we are, each of us individually, supposed to be able to navigate all of that Mm -hmm. on our own. And not all of us are equipped to do that. The other piece that I really want to um, just express frustration with. So I, I, I mentioned earlier, I have two kids who are autistic and navigating the school system was hard work for them. So being in school was hard. They were very good students. They both graduated with diplomas. They had good GPAs, but it came at a cost, which is that I literally didn't have time to teach them how to cook, how to clean. You know how to do these things, because they were doing homework. And the homework yeah. took a lot of time for them. So sure, academically, they look great on their transcripts, but yeah. it did come at a cost. And thankfully, I don't think anybody thanks the pandemic for much, but for me, one of the gifts of the pandemic was, because we were all isolated, I could then spend that time with them. We weren't commuting back and forth and actually teach them some of these activities of daily living that are so critically important. Um, But there just wasn't enough time in the day to teach that. And it is a real problem with our school system that all of our emphasis is on academic excellence, and there's no time to be a person outside of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, school just, and yeah, we we touched on the school system a little bit in our last conversation. I, yeah, it, it's. I I read this book. I uh, I'm reading it still right now. Um, it's called Thinking in Systems, and mm. I, it's a book I highly recommend. It. Um, It got recommended to me by some. Group. I, I can't remember um, the person who posted about it, but I think they recommended it in the sense of like, hey, I have an MBA, um, but you don't need an MBA. You can read these books and get about the information that you're going to get from an MBA. I'm all about reading books that give you an education. And um, I love books that change your perspective and your way of looking at things. And this is one of those books for me. And, you know, they touch on. Interventions in like schooling and and different things like that are often lacking in what they achieve. Like they don't often achieve, like if you, if your emphasis is on getting higher tests, uh, if you believe that testing is the way to achieve your goal, all you're going to end up with is a system that people get better at testing. It's not going to improve correct the education system. It's just going to improve the ability to do testing and and perform well on those tests. And that, that just kind of comes to mind when when I hear the school stuff because like we want kids to achieve things in school academically, but we're missing out on different aspects of education and and just the yeah. the idea of education really. To me at least, is more about I wish somebody would have explained this when I was younger. Is is it's like when you really learn about the world, you can just connect everything. Like it's like, oh, you think that is interesting? Well, let me tell you a bunch of other things. Like you you like cameras, mm-hmm. like let me explain how they work. And it involves electronics, it involves a lens, just like your eye. It involves um you know, being able to focus. Like, I'm not explaining this the greatest, but just uh, like, and then you can go into electronics and that works with a computer. And then the computer that works with um, energy, like energy production goes into that. Like there's so many things like you can go from one thing to the next and everything is Mm -hmm. kind of connected and curiosity matters a lot in that. And education should be more about inspiring curiosity than Than focusing on facts that aren't going to matter so much. Like, sure, you might remember some facts from school, but for the most part, they don't matter. Um, Right. Especially like when I look at history, dates, dates don't matter. I I can, I I can recall some dates. Like I, I know when the constitution was signed. I know when Isaac Newton was around, like I, Mm-hmm. And but, even like Isaac Newton, like a, that's an interest in science for me that and reading the history of science that gets me more to to care about those dates a little bit more. I think inspiring that curiosity and that interest in just learning for the sake of learning, not because it has to do with the test that you need to take, but because this stuff is interesting and I think. Yeah,
1: you want to learn how to learn. Yeah. Like, I feel yeah. like that should be the goal of school is to learn how to learn. And I love what you said about curiosity, yeah. because one of my guiding principles is, uh, and I actually have like a little social media tile that I should share with this on it, but I don't because <laughs> I'm bad at that. Um, but uh, but it says, it would be wonderful if difference inspired curiosity instead of judgment.
0: Mm. Yeah. I agree with that completely. Um, Bottom-up thinking is pretty amazing too. Yeah. And when when yeah. you explain that in the book, um, yeah, that ability to see things in a completely different way than most people do, and mm-hmm. not and, and not come with like a preconceived notion of how things need to operate, and that just matters. And and that can happen in so many situations, not just with autistic people, but with People who with a fresh perspective on things being able to come in and and say, yeah, hey, why are we doing it this way? Wouldn't this make sense? And yeah, like, oh, yeah, that would. And we we become rigid in our structures too, in our systems. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think we should be more open to those different perspectives.
1: Oh, for sure. And I think we'd be better off if we could listen. When yeah. people tell us things that we we can't see because of our own top-down expectations on things, I, one of the examples in that section actually is my own dad. Um, it was the example about how fluid flows through shale. Um, so uh, and and he said, you know, everybody had these ideas about how oil moved through shale. And it took him, sort of just looking at the details of what was going on and he started seeing how the oil would move through the shale. And, Mm. um, and he said, once he said it, everybody thought, Oh, that is in fact, exactly what's going on here. But nobody had ever noticed that before. And it was because he does focus. I mean, he's, he's a systematizer for sure. He's seeing the patterns in things um, that other people do not see. And that, uh you know, I, I just I find it fascinating because I, as a non-autistic person myself, I tend to let my expectations about things guide what I see in the world, and it yeah. makes it easier to navigate the world, right? Because you have these expectations so you don't have to analyze everything all every
2: single time, but it has a cost, too. Yeah, uh,
0: it's, I love it.: um, When you closed out the book one of it was literally one of the last things in the book um, the question why do people focus on weaknesses versus strengths and I thought the answer to that was interesting and applies to life in so many different ways um so it let me tell me if I'm wrong about summarizing it but negative bias. We have a negative bias, which means humans are wired to notice things that are going wrong. And one of the reasons for that is if things are going right, there's really no intervention needed. You just let things keep going in that way. So we, we don't need to say anything. We don't need to point it out. But if things are going wrong, some intervention is needed and something needs to change. And I think that pretty much sums it up, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and I think that tendency, and if we were more aware of it would help us out in so many ways Um, in relationships, um, we can be very critical. I actually, my girlfriend says this about me sometimes. She's like, she'll express that. She feels like I'll mention things that are going wrong, but not appreciate what she's doing in a, Positively. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm very appreciative of all of that stuff. But you know, I, I do recognize that I'm I'll point out the things that are like I feel can change in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. And I think keeping that negative bias in mind is so valuable in so many different aspects of life because oh, yeah. recognizing that, hey, we're there's so many things in life that are we can appreciate and we can look at we can look at our own, uh, our own lives, we can look at the world around us, and we can look at so many different things. And we, it's so easy to find things that are wrong. And if mm-hmm. we focus on those things, then there, there are positive things that can happen from focusing on those things.
1: Well, for sure. And we do need to fix what's broken. <laughs> Definitely.
0: But yeah. it, it kind of keeps us from appreciating everything that our, that's going well like we live in an amazing world we have amazing luxuries in this world that mm-hmm. like people 100 years ago couldn't even dream of having the ability right. i mean the ability for us to have a conversation and have it first of all be recorded in high definition audio and uh, <laughs> high quality video like I launched the podcast briefly in twenty twenty and then stopped, and even at that time, the technology for the video recording
2: mm-hmm. was
0: not where it is today, not even yeah, close. Yeah. um one of the yeah. apps that I use, the app that I did use, we could see each other on a video, but there was no mm-hmm. recording of the video. it was just the audio that was recorded oh and um but we have all of these things at our disposal now and in our world that are just amazing, and yeah. We still have a lot of things that are wrong and a lot of things that can change in a positive direction and and things that are, I mean, we have depressing things in the world. We have bad things in the world, but Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I just found that little paragraph in there just so meaningful and worthwhile and applicable to so many different things outside of the topic of the book. So. I just wanted to point Artie, that out. Th-
1: thank you for saying that. And, you know, um, I, I, so I think I've mentioned my dad is autistic. And mm. I was, I actually literally flew in last night from New Mexico. I had spent a week and a half with him. And um, we actually spread my mother's ashes while we were there. We had a little family gathering and, and did that, which was very hard. Um, <clears throat> and my dad was sad because he misses my mom a lot. Yeah. And, um, And we were talking about it after the event, and he was focused on all the things that hadn't gone the way he had wished. And I said, but think about what was amazing. Like all the people who came and the incredible kind things they said about mom and, you know, and the fact that they were there to support you through this process and, you know, just trying to get him to see that, yes, it's true. Those negative things did happen. And it, you know, because life is not ideal, that's always the case. And, but trying to shift that and, you know, mindfulness, people who work on mindfulness, you know, um, you know, I know the name of your podcast is, uh, you know, thoughtfully mindless, but yeah. I think you're actually very mindful in the way you approach the world and that mindfulness of all the good in the world and, and what is going well and how incredible it is, is something that we can do to make ourselves Feel better about the world and to increase our own happiness, yeah. and you know, so I, I, it's it's an important practice yeah. of of saying, okay, yes, there is this that we need to work on. There is also this that is just amazing and and really a gift.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry for your loss, by the way. Um,
1: thank you, <laughs> thank you. Uh,
0: it's funny that you bring up the title of the podcast because I, somebody asked me the other day how I came up with the name, and I came up with it. Sometime before twenty twenty, and I honestly can't tell you how I came up with the name, (laughs) but I can tell you that to me, the appeal of it was the ambiguity of it. Yeah, thoughtfully mindless. Actually, I I like meditation, and I think Mm -hmm. when you're meditating, you're being thoughtfully mindless to a certain degree. Um, yeah, and it can it can it can mean so many so many different things, and that's why I picked it because it's ambiguous and it gives me the ability to be multi-dimensional and mm-hmm. and not get stuck to anything because people you know they can't really clearly define what it means so it, it allows that ambiguity mm-hmm. and that flexibility so
2: yeah
1: i love the name of the podcast oh, i thank really you. do
0: thank you um i don't i don't want to keep you much longer because we've had a great conversation but i know your time is valuable um I'm interested in mushrooms both psychedelic and um mm. medicinal. Um mm-hmm. and I used to grow some medicinal mushrooms and I I will again, but it it's time consuming. Yeah. I find them to be very beneficial. I looked up prior to our conversation are there studies that have looked into like psychedelics and um any other mushrooms with, with regard to autism. And it looks like there have been, um, Ooh, like I don't know that work. I'm curious. Lion's mane, um, potentially mm-hmm. can improve cognitive function. Mm-hmm. Corticeps can, um, uh, has shown some promise in pr- improving social communication. Really? Yeah. And then this is from chat GPT. Um, I'm using okay. ChatGPT four, for, okay. so I didn't, I didn't go into the actual studies. So it is possible that it's misrepresenting something, but usually it's pretty accurate. Um, and then psychedelic mushrooms uh show some promise in improving social cognition and no. understanding facial expressions, which I really? found very interesting. Yeah from having done I'd
1: love to know the like biochemical mechanism underneath that, right? Wouldn't yeah. that be so well, interesting?
0: With psychedelic mushrooms, there's this, this, like, at least from my experience, there's this connection that you start to feel um, yes. if, you're, if you're in the right atmosphere and, and mm-hmm. under the right circumstances. So I feel like that can explain at least partially the, mm-hmm. the facial expression aspect yeah. of it. Um, so, yeah, I just found that interesting. Um, I also, I want to, when I listened to our first podcast... Uh, I mentioned that I found Adderall to be addictive, and I started mm-hmm. to explain why, but then I actually never. I I went on to sleep. The reason I was talking about sleep is, um, I already have very dysregulated sleep. It's it's hard for me. I don't take any uppers or anything anymore, and it's hard to stay on a sleep schedule. And when you're given an upper like Adderall, yeah. Yeah, and you're not sleeping and you're tired and you'll end up taking it because well now I'm, I have to be up right. and I'm tired like it can do this thing where you're just constantly needing it. Yep. So for me it, it was definitely a negative experience, but I know there's an Adderall shortage right now and mm-hmm. I saw a post of yours saying that the um they're saying that it's caused by something that really doesn't explain why over over diagnosing, over yes. prescri- prescribing, and that doesn't really explain the shortage. Um, it, and I just yeah, that the, I
1: could I could go on and on about that, but I I do. I was listening to something just a couple of days ago where the the person was making a compelling argument that uh, a lot of these medications are not moneymakers for the manufacturers. And so they just really don't want to make them. (laughs) And identification did increase dramatically during the pandemic um, of ADHD. And so, um, so, you know, I, I I think that the combination of that plus the fact that it's just not a moneymaker for the manufacturers, because a lot of it is, um you know in generic form it, it can explain some of what's going on yeah so yeah it's a complex for sure a complex
0: problem <laughs> um so one the one last thing i want to ask you and this is inspired by a friend who said it'd be a cool question to ask and for different coaches and stuff um how do you handle delivering criticism when it's needed like uh, constructive mm. feedback, like having, like, if you have a client who's like, something really needs to change, not getting the point, are you, do you approach it with just bluntness? Do you try to soften the blow? I mean, how do you approach something like that?
1: Wow. It's a really great question. So, a general rule I have is to spotlight the problem, but not the solution. Right. So get the person thinking about, you know, what happened, you know, in the event, whatever it is they're upset about. Okay, what happened there and get them thinking about it as opposed to me saying something about it. Because Mm -hmm. part of what I want to know is what was there, what was going on in their mind as whatever it was played out. Um, There's uh, a technique used uh, with drug addicts called motivational interviewing. Um, which basically gets people to think through the logical consequences of a decision that they're making and whether that's a consequence that they actually want in their life. But the idea is to get the person thinking themselves about the impact of whatever choice they're making. And so sometimes you can help make them more aware of the ramifications of a given decision. Um, But part of the deal is that you're trying to help that person figure out what's going to work for them in their life. Yeah. Right. And so me coming in saying you need to do this or you need to do that isn't actually helpful because what I want them to do is feel that they own the decisions they're making and that they feel good about the decisions that they're making, that, that it is actually helping them.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I really like that. A situation that comes to mind, uh... I know people who drink, and I know some people who drink and aren't satisfied with the relationships that they have, and mm. they'll uh, continue drinking. And yeah, it's like, okay, if you, if you want a girlfriend, if you want a boyfriend, are you being the person that you need to be to have the partner that you want to have?
2: Exactly. Like, are
0: you the person that would attract the person that you ultimately want, or do you need to make some yeah. changes to? to get to yeah. that point. And I think if you just tell somebody, Hey, you need to stop drinking.
2: Right. That
0: doesn't gonna, help. I'm not going to do anything. So yeah. I, yeah. Like that. I
1: love that. And by the way, there's an approach to therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, mm. which basically gets you to, uh, it goes, it takes you through a process of figuring out what values are important to you. And then think about, are my actions consistent with those values that I hold? Yeah. And you know, getting people to sort of step back and reflect, is this a value I have? You know, Was I behaving in a way that really reflected those values? Mm-hmm. And I, I find that that process can be helpful, too. Hmm.
0: Nice. Um, well, it's been a great conversation. I, I would imagine if somebody's wanting to actually diagnose and uh, figure out if they have autism, I think reading uh, The Guide for Clinicians and Everyone Else is a great book. Um, I agree. Would the, the companion book be a great tool for that? Is that what that purpose is?
1: That's, the more, that's more aimed at clinicians okay. who want to go through a diagnostic process. So if for some reason you actually need a clinical diagnosis, then you would have to go to somebody who in your state is licensed to provide that diagnosis. And okay. what we would hope is that those people would use book two <laughs> to help them.
0: Okay, so I do have a question on that then. What if somebody is at their house, they're not in communication with the clinician at all, but they suspect maybe they might be autistic? What is the best way for an individual to get some idea and insight into whether they're autistic? I personally, I would say reading your book is a great yeah. way to do that. I, I think I agree. I've I learned more from this book about autism than I've learned in my entire life. So I Yay. very much like it. <laughs> And it, that nuanced view of everything, that nuanced insight into everything is very valuable. But are there tests that people can take that are somewhat reliable or is there anything like that? Because sometimes reading something is very helpful, but sometimes people need to answer questions that are not directly like, on yeah. point a little bit more.
1: Yeah. And I think also um, interviewing other people in your life and asking them what they see in regards to that thing so that's that's uh the second book talks about interviewing you know partners parents siblings um teachers uh, people, you know, in the community who've interacted with you and getting their perspective also, because sometimes your own internal perspective can be one way and then, you know, it it can be different through the eyes of others. And so that, that process of, uh, having them answer questions as well as you, um, to figure these things out. So I do think it's, it's, probably best to go to somebody who knows how to diagnose autism and have them go through the full process with you. The answer to your question directly, though, is uh, that, that can be an expensive process. Very, very expensive. And so think about why you need the diagnosis. Like if you want to better understand yourself, like deep dive on some of these things, think about it. But if you need accommodations at work or, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, (laughs) insurance reimbursement for therapy, whatever it is, then um, you may need to get a diagnosis.
0: Yeah. So. Dr. Whelan, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's very enjoyable. I learned so much. You're, you're, have a wealth of knowledge that And and a way of communicating it that just, I love, I very much, I live for these conversations. Um, Before we wrap up, again, you want to give everyone a way to to reach you if they want to work with you and feel free to mention more about your book or anything else that you want to share.
1: Well, my my website is guidingexceptionalparents.com. I mostly work with parents of kids with invisible disabilities, helping them get supports in place for their kids and themselves. Um, And uh, you can find out more about the book, which right here is This Autism. And we have a website, which is isthisautism.com. And you can learn lots and lots about the books there Um, and also how to contact me and my co-authors, who are also amazing people.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Raymond.
1: It, it was really fun. I really enjoyed the conversation already. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If our conversations resonate with you, consider leaving a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your streaming platform of choice. Your ratings help us grow and reach more listeners. Don't hesitate to spread the word about our podcast. It's one of the best ways you can support us. I'm always eager to hear from you. So find me on Twitter at TMConvos or follow us on Instagram at Thoughtfully Mindless for a peek behind the scenes and more thoughtful content. And if you're looking for additional ways to support the show, visit FractalZoo.net where you can find exclusive t-shirts and apparel. Each purchase contributes directly to the podcast and allows us to keep bringing you content that matters. Thank you once again for lending us your ears. Until next time, stay thoughtfully mindless.